So let's pray and then uh, we'll begin. We got kids here, so this is going to be a little bit shorter. And it's also, the sun is a little bit intense right now. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a little bit shorter than normal. Um, and we got kids here, and, and so I'm going to engage them a little bit. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of our affection. You are so worthy of our praise that we can't even begin to conceive or imagine how worthy you really are. We can barely make it to the, the front doorsteps of your greatness and your um, infinitude and your glory. But on Sundays, Father, when we come together as a body, we come together trusting that you will draw near to us in a way that maybe we didn't experience over the course of this week, that through the body of Christ, through the, the worship that we just experienced and will experience later through communion, which we'll have in a little bit, that you'll come near to us, Father, through the word that you're going to teach us something about who you are that will make us delight in you and love you more than we did when we woke up this morning. That's what we want today, Father. And, and, and I'm praying right now because I know that you can do it. Nothing is impossible for you. And so I ask that you would do that, that you'd come here and be with us this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please grab your Bibles if you have them and open them to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. We're going to look at the first three verses. So we're still in Colossians. We're still in uh, the Colossians series that we were, series of Colossians messages that we've been in for the last year. Uh, and if you were here with us last week, uh, you know that we began a series that looks at how we declare war on our sin, how we kill sin in our lives. That's the focus of Paul's passage here in Colossians. And we're going to be going back to Colossians next week and a little bit today, but I want to look at a passage in Hebrews specifically because it shines a light on something that we read earlier in, um, in Colossians. Um, and so the question we have today is how do people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ fight the things inside of their hearts that dishonor God or disobey God? Um, but before we go forward, like I said, we have to go back a few weeks. So last, a few weeks ago, when we started the series In Christ, we looked at this passage in Colossians 2.6. Listen to this. Therefore, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Now this verse is the first imperative, the first command we have in the book of Colossians. And, over there, <clears throat> and this command effectively is telling us how we are to walk in Christ, how we are to live in Christ Jesus. So if you've been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, if you've put your faith in him, how do you live? And Paul answers that question. You walk in Christ the same exact way that you received Christ Jesus. And so how did we receive Christ Jesus? We received him with faith. We received him by faith. John 1.12 puts it this way. But to all who did receive him, received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So everything we're going to be talking about today takes this concept of receiving Christ, believing in Christ, as one of the means by which we fight sin in our lives. This is how we walk in him. So the Christian life isn't something that just begins with faith. The Christian life is lived out every step of the way, trusting in Christ. And since sin is part of the Christian's everyday life, then sin and faith are, fighting against sin and faith are together. How we trust God determines how we fight sin. 
But before we go there, we got kids today. Like I said, I'm going to engage them a little bit. I'm going to ask some questions, guys, throughout the course of today. And you also have a word search. If you picked up one of the, one of the little um, folder things, you've got a word search in there as well. That might help you. But the question I've got for kids today, and I, wanna, I want you guys listening up. The question is this. What is sin? If you know what sin is, I want you to raise your hand and help me out. Anderson, what's sin? You know what it is. I think we all forget, yet we all know what it is, too. Anyone want to give a go at it? Allison. Stuff that we do wrong. Stuff that we do wrong. Gavin, you held up your hand. What is sin? Sin is like disobeying the Ten Commandments. That's, that's sin, disobeying the Ten Commandments. Dishon- that's awesome. We're going to get to that in a second. <laughs> You're jumping ahead, Gavin. I got the notes. What, what, what is it, Anderson? That's a Westminster Catechism, this guy. (laughs) That's impressive. Um, uh, So sin is all those things. Gavin hit on it a little bit. I'm going to say that sin at the very basic level, the the furthest you go down underneath all the things that we do that's wrong, sin is when we do anything that dishonors God, when we do or say or think anything that makes him look to the world around us less valuable than he really is. And so at the bottom, this is the foundation of what sin is. Everything that we do that's wrong comes from that, comes from a disposition that doesn't see God as more worthy than doing this or doing that. And all those things sprout up from that. So with that, let's read the first three verses in Hebrews 12, and let's see if this can help fill in some of the gaps in the Colossians passage for us. So Hebrews 12, 12, 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance, or let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from such from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Praise God. So the author of Hebrews has just told us, he begins this sentence with, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, and that means that something came before his statement. And he's telling us that in chapter 11, the chapter immediately preceding this, it is effectively an entire list of all the believers from the Old Testament who showed faith. They were faithful believers in the Old Testament. He has so many there that actually halfway through chapter 11 says, time would fail me to mention all of them, so I'm just going to rattle them off here. He cuts his list short because there are a lot of faithful believers. There's a cloud of witnesses. These are people who trusted in God. People who trusted in God's promises. And so I have another question for the kids today. You listening, kids? Here's a question. What does it mean to trust someone? What does it mean to trust someone? Sam, you want to help us out? What does it mean to trust someone? He doesn't trust you. No, he doesn't trust me. He's running away. 
To trust someone means to believe in them. When they tell you something's going to happen or when they tell you something's true, you believe in them. You trust what they say. And these people trusted God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, after unloading this megaton of names and events from the Old Testament of people who've trusted in God, he says, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, how should we respond? How should we live our lives? And he gives us four attributes, four things that a Christian should do in response to this great cloud of witnesses, in response to the legacy of faithfulness of God's people. We're going to look at them together and then I'll unpack each of them. The first one is this. He says we need to lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. Then he says lay aside the sin that clings so closely. That's number two. And number three is run. Let us run the race before us with endurance. And the fourth one is this. Look to Jesus. While we do all those other things, we look to Jesus. So let's look at the first one real quick. The author doesn't start off by telling us to run. He doesn't even start off by telling us you need to get rid of all the sin in your life. What he does here is he says there's an expectation that while you're running, you do something. You are getting rid of things for sure. What are we getting rid of? His first statement in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, is not sin, surprisingly, but every weight. Now, why say every weight? Why say every weight? Why not just focus on sin? Well, the author's main concern here for believers isn't that they answer this question, what sins are, am I committing that I need to get rid of? They should ask that question. That should be a question they answer. That's not the first thing they should look at. The first thing they should look at is something else. It is to lay aside every weight. Because when you're running, what does a weight do? It slows you down. And it keeps us from finishing. And so what is the weight in this analogy? The answer is this. The question we ask to figure out what a weight is in our life is this. Does it keep me from running? Does it keep me from running the race? <laughs> Does it keep me from finishing? Is it distracting me from Christ? The author's burden isn't for them first to get rid of their sin, but rather to have the disposition of their heart that's willing to get rid of anything that slows them down from pursuing Jesus Christ. Anything. There's no moral or ethical framework here. Does it stop you from pursuing Jesus? He says, lay aside every weight. So if we were to codify the Christian life as, as one life that's just trying to stop sinning or trying to do good deeds, you would have a life that looks a lot like any other major religion in the world. Anyone can try to stop sinning. Anyone can. In fact, most people in this world, whether they're secular or religious, Christian or not, try, don't, they don't want to sin. They don't want to do bad things. But... What's uniquely Christian isn't that. What's uniquely Christian is that we are so infatuated with Jesus Christ that we will give up anything that keeps us from running this race. Anything at all. And so he says, every weight, every encumbrance, lay them down. And then he goes to number two. Lay down the sin that clings so closely. And so cling here, the word cling here, doesn't mean that it's caught on you. Like, kids, have, have any of you ever had a bug that's caught on you and trying to get it off and it won't come off? Anybody? Can you? You've had that. Allison, you've had that. That's not the analogy here. The sin isn't clinging in that way. 
That's not what's happening here because sin involves what we want to do. Yeah, if you just keep on brushing it, right? Yeah, thank you, Maya. Um, what's happening here is that the nature of sin is so attractive to us. The nature of sin is so appealing to our natural desires that if we're really honest, part of us doesn't want the sin to go away. Part of us doesn't want to tear our grip off the sin. And the author says, no, you have to fight sin. You have to fight it. You have to remove it from you. And that's a picture of faith because remember what we talked about last week, how we, we need to, to, to fight sin, we need to cling to Christ. Well, in order to cling to Christ, we can't be clinging to other things that are in the place of Jesus. We have to tear our grip off our own sin and leave it, which is repentance, and turn to Christ and trust him. We don't play games with sin. We don't leave it in our life. That's the second thing. The third thing, and this is, if I'm honest with you, the center of Christian living. Very important. The author says, we as Christians run. We run. This is the Christian life. And we do it with endurance. We run the race that is set before us and we run with endurance. Now, I love to run. I love to run. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. Um, and so I dig this analogy, but I know that every, not everybody likes to run. Kids, do you, does anybody here like to run? Who likes to run? Dave, you're able to, um, Allison, can you run faster than your dad? You can't? Lily, can you run faster than your dad? Okay. Liam, can you run faster than your dad? Don't answer that. Um, some people don't love running. So, so the question I ask when I get to something like this where it's, it's clear that some people are going to look at that and say, I, I don't want my life to be a life of running. Why use this analogy? Why use an analogy like running? And I think it's because in a race, the runner has one goal. One goal. Every muscle, every breath, every molecule in their being is trying to accomplish one thing. The runner desires in the middle of the race to finish. He desires to cross the finish line and to win the race, to have victory. And that's the purpose of using this running analogy. And he wants us to run with endurance, which means we refuse to give up. We will finish this race. We will be victorious. That's the mindset and the heart that we have with this. Which takes us to the fourth thing. And that is, how does, an, how does the author see us running with endurance? How do we run with endurance? And he says, by looking to Christ, by looking to Jesus, by the runner fixing their eyes on Jesus Christ because that is the finish line. That's where they're headed. They lock eyes with Jesus and they run. That's the Christian life. They run as fast as their legs can take them with all endurance because it may take a while. In fact, it will take them their entire life. But it doesn't matter, they run. So this is what faith looks like in the Christian life. Like laying aside every weight, anything that stops me from pursuing him. Laying aside all sin, even the sin that clings close to us. And running with our eyes locked onto Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, the author says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now this is amazing. This is amazing because we often, when we use the word faith, we use it as though it is an action. And the Bible commands us to believe. 
But in the Bible, it doesn't define faith as an action that we do. Belief isn't something you can just manufacture and create. Instead, it is something that is created in you by Christ Jesus. And so when the author says that Christ is the founder of our faith, the beginner of our faith, the author of our faith, he means that Jesus is the reason we believe. He is the reason our faith is, comes into being. He is the reason that our faith grows in strength, in vigor, in passion. He is the reason every single day that we trust in Christ. And so when the runner looks to Christ, they don't just see a savior. They, they see the author and the creator of their faith the one who will make that faith complete, one day turning it into sight. And part of the way that God does this is through the reality of the gospel, through the reality of what Jesus accomplished. Listen to this again. It says here, look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before Jesus Christ, he endured the cross despising the shame and is now, right now, this very second seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So think about this. Jesus, to get to the throne of God, he has to go through the cross. He had to endure the cross, this brutal execution at the hands of sinners. He had to plow through a a Mount Rainier worth of shame and wrath, not because of anything he did wrong, not because of anything he did wrong, but in order that all of our wrongs, which are many, would be punished he had to do that. And so how does he do this? Where does he, where does he summon the courage in Gethsemane, praying to his father to go through that mountain to get to the cross? It says here that he did this for the joy set before him. He saw through the brutality of the cross. He saw through the absolute horror and shame of being separated from his father And he saw to the other side, to the throne, where he would be seated at the right hand of his father forever. He saw Jesus, saw his father, and that's the joy that propelled him through the cross. He saw the right hand and he said, that's my seat. That is my seat and I will have it. That's where I belong. And so he's weeping in the garden of Gethsemane. He's on his knees. He doesn't know if he can go through. He says it. He says, Father, If you could pass this cup from me, please do it. And God strengthens him. He sees the joy. And he says, that's my seat. That's my place. That's where I belong. The immense joy of being reunited with his father forever. He says, I will be with him forever. I will go through the cross if that's what I have to do. So for Jesus, enduring the cross and the shame, as great as that was, and we cannot even fathom what he went through is the pathway for him to infinite joy. And you might say, well, Jeremy, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I mean, he's the son of God. He had to do this, right? He's had, he had to endure the cross. How else would he save us? And you'd ask the question, what about me? How does me looking at Jesus in this race that we're running and his sacrifice, how does that help me tomorrow when I'm tempted at work? or when I am tempted to be angry or frustrated with our kids, or I'm tempted to say something that's mean and hurtful, or I'm tempted to look at something that I'm not supposed to look at. How does this help me there? How does it help me to lay aside every weight, every weight, because we've got lots of them. 
How does it help me to lay them aside when they become an obstruction between me and Christ? How does it help me to run with endurance every day of my life? And to answer those questions, we have verse three. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews says, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our endurance to run this race comes from one place and one place alone, the cross of Jesus Christ. As we consider Jesus, as we consider the one who endured hostility from sinners that we can't even fathom, we recognize what he bought with his own blood. It wasn't just forgiveness of sins. He did buy that, and that is glorious. It wasn't just a righteousness that's not our own. He did buy that, and that is amazing and worthy to worship him for. He bought every ounce, every drop of blood, sweat, tears. He bought all of them for our endurance, our faith, our refusal to give up on this race. That is radical love. To buy that for us, for me, someone who's disregarded him many days of my life, is radical and amazing. He didn't just forgive us and then let us fend for ourselves. He said, I will, in this cross, secure everything necessary to bring you to the end of this race. Everything, every drop of sweat, I will secure and I will bring you with me to my Father forever. That's his promise in the cross for you. That is his promise in the cross for you. So how does seeing the Savior, Jesus, relate to fighting sin, which is what we're talking about here? What is the connection between trusting in Christ and getting rid of the things that dishonor God in our lives? Here's how. Faith trusts Jesus every step of the way, not just as the Savior. He is that. And we should trust him for that. But as the joy set before us. He is that joy for us. The joy of being reunited with him is what drives us into the arms of God. He is our joy. He is infinitely better, infinitely better than any joy we could possibly experience in sin. And I know it's easy to say that here. And then when you're in the middle of temptation, not to feel it. But we need to do everything in our our power to get our hearts to feel that reality. Because it's true. Jesus Christ is infinitely better than any sin, any fleeting pleasure we can experience in sin. Trusting in Christ as our treasure means that no sin, not a single thing we can do in this life to dishonor God is more enjoyable than Jesus, period. No sin is like that. And this is what it means to run. This is what it means to believe and trust in Christ Jesus. Jesus is better. So when we think about faith, saving faith, Faith that sees objective, the objective value of Christ and treasures him as that value. That's the faith that gets us through sin. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the shame. And now we are being beckoned by Jesus to go through the difficulty, the challenge, the shame in this life in order to get to him, in order to get to Christ. And we do this by believing in him and looking to him and running. And so my prayer for this church and for the next year 
is that we would commit ourselves to laying aside every weight, every encumbrance, anything that would dispose us not to pursue Jesus. And by laying aside the sin in our lives that clings at us because we cling onto it and running, that we would lock eyes with the one who loves us more than anyone in this world loves us. No one loves us like Jesus. We would lock eyes with him and we'd say, I'm, I'm going to you. Nothing's going to stop me from getting to you. I will go to you because you've, of who you are and what you've done. I will go to you because you bought every ounce of my endurance. And I will finish this race. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for these people. I'm so grateful for your grace in our lives to bring us together as a community of believers who love you. We desire you. We want your name to be glorified. But the main struggle with that is the disposition, the natural disposition of our hearts to pursue other things with a greater intensity and a greater passion than you. And it is deadly. Our eyes were made explicitly to look at the face of Jesus Christ. Everything else is icing on top. We were made to behold him in his glory. And my prayer is that we would press in. We would strive. We would lay aside every weight, Father, and we would pursue Christ Jesus with every breath in our being, Father God. We love you. Please come as we worship and celebrate you with communion. Glorify your name in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.